I'm David Crow, and this is episode 258 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow and theinfectiousmyth.com. That's Crow with an E. Like our page and respond to postings at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. And join our discussion group at facebook.com slash groups slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. You can listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990 and following the instructions. PRN.FM has voicemail. Call 862-800-6805 and leave a message, your name, and indicate that it is for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know that you're a listener until I hear from you, so send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from my listeners, so don't be shy. And a special thanks to all the new Patreon donors who signed up this month. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com or commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com where we are also Infectious Myth, one word. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want this show to continue to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information that you are gleaning, for the support you get for some non-mainstream ideas, and the challenges to others. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. Pharmaceutical companies want to make a lot of money off COVID-19 uh, without too many moral qualms over the safety of drugs or vaccines. <clears throat> We've seen that with vaccine trials and with the drug remdesivir. However, Pharmaceutical company ethical lapses on a grand scale are not unique to the coronavirus. And today we're going to call talk to Jim Gottstein, who um, has been very involved in obtaining information about Zyprexa and trying to prevent people in Alaska from being forcibly drugged with Zyprexa and other drugs. He has a new book called The Zyprexa Papers. Jim Gottsein grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. Instead of going into the family grocery and real estate business, he opted for a business degree at the University of Oregon. But once he took a business law class, he was hooked on the law and managed to get into Harvard Law School as the only skydiving applicant from Alaska that year. After graduating in 1978, Jim went into private practice in Anchorage, prim primarily representing Alaska Native organizations. In 1982, he experienced a psychotic break due to sleep deprivation and was introduced firsthand to the mental illness system. He was told he would be permanently mentally ill and to forget about his law career. Luckily, he escaped psychiatry and the experience led him to legal representation and other advocacy for people diagnosed with serious mental illness who are not as lucky as him. He opened his own law office in 1985, generally focused on business matters, and is now mostly retired from the private practice of law. In 2002, Jim founded the Law Project for Psychiatric Rights, a short form Psych Rights, 
to mount a strategic lit litigation campaign against forced psychiatric drugging and electroshock, and to inform the public about the counterproductive and harmful nature of the drugs and shock. He's the author of the Zyprexa papers, which is the reason for this interview. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks for having me. Would you like to talk about your psychotic break, or maybe not like, but <laughs> would, you, would you talk about it? Like what happened, what you think the causes were, what your symptoms were, and how you, how you got out of it without becoming a permanent customer of the uh, psychiatrists and drug companies? Sure, I think it's uh, important to talk about it to you know, kind of bust, bust the myth that um, it's, you know, some kind of brain defect and, you you know, it's a lifelong, quote, disease and, and uh, you know, people can't get better. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I had, um, I just, I had never really experienced a situation where I, you know, couldn't do everything, quote, that needed to be done. And, um, uh, and I had, uh, just gone, gotten back from uh, Europe. I was opening my law practice and I was running for the state Senate um, all at the same time. Uh, right. and I, when I got back, I was, you know, I was jet lagged and I was really behind on the uh, Senate campaign, which I had mm -hmm. a pretty good chance of winning actually. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and one of the things, uh, what happens to me, which I, you know, found out is um, if I have so much stuff going on that, you know, that I'm trying to work out in my mind, what should I do? What's the strategy? All that kind of stuff. I can't stop thinking about it and go, you know, and sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was, uh, the, you know, and so that happened to me. And I had uh, n never experience the situation where you know my thinking would be unreliable so that was just not something that would you know be in my <laughs> conception uh, until that point so anyway i had you know i was uh not sleeping and i had gone over to my dad's house and um to try and sleep and i'd laid down in in his bed there on the second floor uh, and I had just fallen asleep. I uh, when I woke up and uh, thought I heard the devil coming down the hall. Mm. So, so, um, so I went to the window, which is the second floor again, and I looked down, and there was uh, there was a lawn, and then there was a sidewalk down there. And I thought to myself, if I can miss the sidewalk. I know how to do a PLF, which is, stands for parachute landing fall, and I won't hurt myself. And I was in my underwear. It's about 1 a.m. in the morning in June, which means that it's light. Um, so I jumped out of the window, which is perfectly logical if the devil is coming down the hall. Right? Uh, yeah, it makes perfect sense if that's what you're believing in the moment, yeah. So I um, and did it, executed it, you know, a uh, perfect parachute landing fall in my underwear, and I ran across the street to this parking lot, and I, and I kept looking over my shoulder for the devil. So yeah. I was I was spinning around, looking you know looking over my shoulder. Anyway, the the uh, 
they hauled me off. <laughs> they put me in a straitjacket and hauled me off to the hospital. Um, mm -hmm. Where and then injected me with something to uh, put me to sleep. So uh, then I wake up in this, you know, hospital bed, uh, and there's this male nurse or you know clerk or something at the at the end of the bed on a chair with a clipboard on his knee, and he asks me, "What day is it?" And I say, "How long have I been asleep?" So he writes down, doesn't know, you know, what day it is. I mean, there's this thing, are you oriented to, you know, you know, to name uh, date and place. Right, right. That's one, mm -hmm. that's one of the, the things. So they, they put down that I wasn't oriented as to time. Um, but again, that was a perfectly logical uh, question because I didn't know how, how long I'd been asleep. So. Um, perfectly logical answer. Or answer. Right. Exactly. I mean, it seems like you, you should know what day it is, but if you've if you've been put on a drug to put you to sleep, I mean, who knows how long you slept? It's true. Right. Right. So, I mean, I could go into more what happened there. Like one of the things um, is, you know, I was I, they they basically said if you don't sign yourself in, we're going to go to court and get you committed. And mm -hmm. that office I was, I knew I didn't want that on my record. And so um, I signed myself in, but I was basically locked up there. And, and it's kind of an Alice in Wonderland experience in a psych hospital. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. So one of the things I used to do, I did was I kind of go limp and make them catch me as kind of as a form of protest. And one time they didn't catch me and I hit my head and I go, oh, that, maybe I should quit doing that. And I used to make a joke that about ties, that it's ridiculous to tie, you know, tie a rope around your neck every morning. So they wrote down, you know, he thinks a tie is for hanging yourself. Uh, um, suicidal ideation. <laughs> yeah, but I had said that, you know, that was a common joke that I'd said for years. And um uh, the message basically was that I would, you know, never get better, that, uh, you know. Which is, which is a strange message because they're giving you drugs that they claim are going to help you, but they're also claiming that they're not going to help you that much that you're going to get healthy again. Right. Well, you know, that's right. It, does, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but basically psychiatry the way it's practiced today doesn't doesn't make much sense um so i mean basically the drugs are to um uh sedate you enough so that you, you're not causing trouble and so one of the things that happened was um uh you know they uh those that believed i was a lawyer said i would never practice law again um, right. And when I told them that I'd gone to Harvard Law School, that confirmed that I was delusional. Um, Even though it was true. Right. Um, and if you, you know, like, if you read the, uh, if people read the book, the Zyprexa paper, papers, um, the, the person for whom I uh, subpoenaed them, Bill Bigley, at one point, uh, the reporter for the New York Times, it, came up to cover a trial, a trial of Alaska v. Lilly, 
the state of Alaska versus Lou, the manufacturer of Zyprexa paper, of the Zy, of Zyprexa. Right. Um, and so the Alaska v. Lilly was going on up, you know, in one courtroom and, and uh, this commitment hearing for Bill Bigley was going on down below. And so he wrote a story about you know, that and Bill Bigley and, you know, in the trial. And uh, so uh, at, at more than one of these commitment hearings, the psychiatrist said that Bill claiming that he was in the New York Times uh, just, you know, can, you know, prove that he was uh, delusional. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, that, that's kind of crazy. I mean, they, they have no information. It's unlikely that he'd be in the New York Times, but he was. I mean, unlikely things happen, right? Maybe it was yeah, unlikely. Yeah. Maybe it was unlikely that you went to Harvard Law School. Not too many people do, but it's possible. So unless you know it's not true, <coughs> you, you know, uh, that's not, you know, that doesn't make much sense. I mean, it doesn't say that they have a very high standard for the, inform for the information they're going to use to keep you there. So what, did you develop a strategy to get out? Did you just like calmly wait until your time of commitment was over and then, and then get the heck out of there? Or like, how well, did you yeah. get out? I was there for 30 days. And, you know, now that I think about it, I wonder if that was because that's when the insurance ran out. Um, uh, but although I, I had a pretty big bill that I ended up paying and you, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I was there for 30 days. Um, and, uh, I went, you know, I, you know, my family has some resources and stuff and da da da. And my dad found this, uh, had, had this industrial psychiatrist or psychologist and, uh, he recommended this guy in New Rochelle, New York, which actually people know about now because of the, uh, uh, you know, pandemic. Uh, uh, but at the time, it was more uh, famous for being where L Laura and Rob Petrie lived from uh, the Dick Van Dyke show. Anyway, the, the psychiatrist was nice enough. He didn't help me a bit. Um, they, he ended up by diagnosing me with bipolar disorder, which, you know, was also, is also known as manic depression. Mm -hmm. um, and then one, so, but I ended up, uh, I mean, I've been so lucky. And so one of the things that happened, this was actually before I went to New show, is they wanted to put me on lithium. And I, I was a pilot. And uh, I would, you know, I wouldn't uh, lose my license or my medical certificate, technically, if I was on lithium, but they didn't care. And so, and it was really important to me, flying, um, flying Alaska is just fabulous. And, um, but, I, so, but my creatine clearance uh, test didn't come out right. So my kidney function that they were concerned about, and lithium is very toxic on kidneys. I, um, I recently lost a friend who died from, died from that. Um, mm. And um, so they sent me to a nephrologist, a kidney doctor to do a kidney biopsy. 
and he was poking this, need, this big needle in my back, and he couldn't find my kidneys, my kidney. So I ended up not getting put on lithium, which was really lucky. Yes. Um, but the, the um, luckiest thing that happened is I, my mother, uh, who was actually the executive director of the Alaska Mental Health Association, uh, uh, referred me to this Dr. Robert Alberts, who's this fantastic guy. He's a psychiatrist. He was Dutch, and he was a prisoner of war during World War II of the Japanese in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he was just a fabulous guy, and, and and I would talk to him, and he he said he you know he wanted to uh, you know get a partner or something, but he said it was so hard to find anybody with any common sense. Um, but he basically told me that anybody that doesn't get sleep will become psychotic. Mm -hmm. um, and I could, you know, just learn how to deal with it, uh, which is, you know, what I've done. And so um, it's not, for me, it's not really rocket science to figure out when I'm getting in trouble, you know, if I don't sleep and I don't have a great tolerance for that. You know, that's gonna. Uh, you you know, yeah, yeah. With me, I had problems with uh, dehydration from flying. Uh, you know, long flying to Asia and places like that, and I wouldn't, you know, drink enough water, and I had a couple of out of body experiences. But luckily, it never got to the point where I ended up in a psychiatric hospital. But I was, when I realized what was going on, all I needed to do was to drink water if I started to feel dizzy and, and start to feel, you know, a little bit um, like the world wasn't real. Uh, and like with you, I guess it's, it's just sleep. And once you know that, that, you know, you're maybe more sensitive to this issue than other people, it's pretty easy to manage it. But if you're unaware of it, you know, you, you don't, you know, when I, when I first had these situations, it, you know, I just accidentally drank tea because I couldn't think of anything else to do at two o'clock in the morning in my hotel room. <laughs> That's all I had. And, and all of a sudden I'm getting better, but I didn't clue in that that was the issue. And, you know, what if I'd done something crazy and got dragged off to psychiatric hospital? I might be still on psychiatric drugs. There are so many people that get captured and never escape. I mean, mm. You know, it's millions of people. Right. We'll talk uh, about Bill Bigley later because, like, his his history was pretty shocking. But um, I, I want to talk to you. Make sure we talk about um, Zyprexa before we get into you know the importance of the Zyprexa paper. Can you talk about what kind of a drug it is, um, what it's approved for? Is it effective? Is it safe? Uh, is it still widely used? You know, some background on Zyprexa. So Zyprexa is one of the, uh, what they call the second generation of neuroleptics. And I use the term neuroleptic uh, instead of the marketing term antipsychotic because they don't really have an antipsychotic property for most people. Um, but what they do is they block, uh, well, the older ones, like Thorazine and Haldol and Stelazine and Prolixin and Melaril, which is the one they, they gave me, uh, block 70 to 
of the dopamine transmission in the frontal lobes, the basal ganglia, and the uh, limbic system. Um, and the newer ones, the second generation, do that, plus they do a lot of other stuff. So they're actually worse. Um, so Zyprexa, um, so it's tech, so they block 70 to 90% of the dopamine transmission in the frontal lobe. So they're literally a chemical lobotomy. And so that, what that does is that just, you know, suppresses the brain activity so much that people just are not able to cause the trouble. That, right, um, which, which appears, yeah, right, which appears like it's an improvement, right? Because the person's not shouting and yelling and, and throwing things. Uh, so we've got success. Right. And, uh, but the problem is, one of the problems is that, so the brain compensates for this blockage of dopamine. And the first thing that it does for a few weeks is it grows more dopamine receptors. So while they've never found any kind of brain abnormality in people who are diagnosed say, with schizophrenia, be, you know, before the drugs, after the drugs are, you know, introduced, they do see different brain changes, these uh, extra dopamine receptors, um, and actually uh, brain shrinkage. And, the, you know, there's cognitive decline and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, so, so one of the things that happens is um, after you've been on it for a while and you have these extra dopamine receptors, if you especially abruptly withdraw from the drug, then you'll have this flood of dopamine and that causes a bunch of, you know, uh, psychiatric symptoms for a lot of people. Um, but uh, it's not it's not really from under, any underlying quote mental illness. It's from so you're saying if you stop the, the drug that, that this comes back? Well, it's really not coming back. It's a, a drug cause symptom. But then right. they say, but they'll say, oh, see, you need the drug. Right. So withdrawal from the drug causes symptoms which are interpreted as, as we're unmasking the underlying condition. How long does it take somebody to wean themselves off Zyprexa? And can you do it cold turkey or do you need to, um, uh, you know, take it slowly because of the addictive effects? Or the There's a wide variation of people um, in terms of how, uh, people's success. So it's basically not recommended that you abruptly withdraw a cold turkey. Um, mm -hmm. So the kind of rule of thumb is you should take as long to get off as you were on it, up to a year. Um, right. uh, there's a couple of great uh, withdrawal uh, books. One is the Free uh, Harm Reduction Guide to Coming Off Psychiatric Drugs. Um, that's a free download on the on the internet. And there's a link to it on the Psych Rights website uh, mm. on page psychrights.org, P-S-Y-C-H-R-I-G-H-T-S.org. Okay, uh, and then, then there's a book by uh, Dr. Peter Bregan. Oh, coming, yes. Yeah, Coming Off Psychiatric Drug, uh, psychiatric drug Withdrawal, I think it's called. And one of the really interesting things about both books is they spend a lot of time um, uh, discussing 
the importance of being in a setting where you can go through what you need to go through to get off, you know, so have a supportive environment. I think one of the really good things is to have someone that, that you'll trust, hopefully, even if you're, you know, start to develop uh, um, symptoms to tell you when, you know, things are maybe getting, uh, you know, they're get, you're getting into trouble. And so, um, I think the thing to basically do is you go, you know, you go down slowly and then if you start to have, you know, symptoms that are too problematic, that you go up to where you, you know, back up to where you were. Um, and then, um, you know, and then start back down slow more, you know, slowly again. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, and a lot of people are on multiple drugs. And Dr. Bregan suggests that you withdraw from one at a time because otherwise you can't really tell what's what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and my sense of things is, you know, mo- almost everybody can substantially reduce the amount that they're taking. But some people, um, and it's not a, a small, you know, a real small percentage, just, you know, they get to that last last small dose and they just can't get off it and mm-hmm. you know my my theory is well it's not just a theory you know it's way better to be on less than more and so right if you if you get down <clears throat> excuse me if you can get you know down to just a little bit that's good now one of the ones the class of drugs that are extremely difficult to get off of or what's called the benzodiazepines. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's Valium, Xanax, Clonitin, um, that, I forget some of the other ones. So, and they're given for for sleep. And one of the, well, I don't know, you want to hear, um, I'll talk a little bit more about my strategy. Uh, huh. So, so I, you know, if I'm not getting sleep, I know what, you know, what to look for. So the first thing that'll happen is uh, that I get kind of sharp and witty and nobody mm-hmm. notices except me that I can tell. Right. Um, and then I'll have, you know, uh, what's called thought blocking, which is where you, you're talking and you just kind of stop in the middle. It's not like, mm-hmm. not quite like not finding words. And so, you know, that's kind of the next progression. And then I'll get to the point where I think people are looking at me funny. Right, a little bit of paranoia. paranoia. Yeah, and so so then what I do is I, you know, think to myself, okay, uh, people probably aren't looking at me funny. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And I just, you know, and I say, you know, I really say that. And then, but then the other thing I do, and it's interesting you say out of body experience, I kind of, um, well, then I, then I think, but if, uh, but if they are looking at me funny, it's probably because I'm doing something weird. And so then what I try and do is, is observe, you know, what I'm doing so that mm-hmm. I don't, you know, don't do anything. So I kind of like observe myself from up above to make sure. That I'm not doing anything weird, and and when I get to that point, it's a um, not you know it's not a good sign. And so um, I will take a benzo for one night, mm-hmm. J- 
just, you know, just to stop that, that cycle. And right, because if you're trying to go to sleep and your brain is racing and you can't go to sleep, it's kind of worse than right. so, being up. Right, so I just do that. And I like this, this one called Halcyon, which is much maligned committed murder on a much higher doses than me, which is mm. what Dr. Alberts told me. Um, and so uh, that's one of the ways that I deal with it. But the other way that I deal with it is to try not to put myself in a position where I'm not sleeping. And um, as a lawyer, you know, you have deadlines for filings and things like that. And mm -hmm. um, and uh, so most lawyers, you know, you can always make it better. You know, you can go through it again and make it better. So most lawyers will file right at the deadline. And what I, I do is I try and file the day before. You know, right. I get it, you know, I get it to where I think it's good, good enough. And I like to think, you know, my good enough is pretty good. And I'll file it the day before if I can. Right. Um, and, and then you don't have that stress. I'm going to have to stay up till, you know, the last minute to get this done. Right. And, right. Um, so that, those, those are my basic strategies. And there's this program, uh, Mary Ellen, what's it called? Oh, it's funny. I'm spacing it out. Um, all right. I might think about it later about there's this a program about how you know how to um uh figure out what your you know triggers are what helps and have an, uh, a wellness recovery action plan the rap program mm -hmm. uh, where you figure out what your triggers are what helps um and then if you run into trouble to have a you know kind of an emergency plan okay and that's very good well, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the specific Cyprexa papers, which it's sort of reminiscent of the Pentagon papers. And there were a number of things about the adventures that went on that kind of reminded me of what happened with the Pentagon papers. But presumably you were, you were sensitized to the fact that Cyprexa was a bad drug and it was being over uh, promoted by Eli Lilly, the manufacturer uh, which allowed them to make buckets more money than if they'd had maybe a more ethical uh, marketing campaign. I, I mean, one of the things you described was off-label promotion of off-label uses, which and that is illegal, right? For a drug company to to say maybe you should use it on young people when it's not approved for young people or something like that. Correct. In the U.S., drugs are approved for specific uses, and but the doctors can prescribe them for anything. Mm. Uh, but the drug companies are not allowed to promote it for anything except the approved uses. Right. So you received from a lawyer, I think you said millions of pages of documents, maybe on a CD or well, well, DVD what or something. Happened, so, um, yeah, there's this expert witness, uh, Dr. David Eagleman, who's a physician. Uh, of all right, not a lawyer, but an expert witness. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and he had, uh, he was an expert witness in this giant 
but it's multi-district litigation where literally 25,000 separate cases against Eli Lilly for causing diabetes and other metabolic problems that were consolidated into one case for discovery and settlement purposes. And discovery mm -hmm. is where uh, the parties are required to uh, provide the other parties, you know, with uh, documents or, you know, answer questions and those kind of things. And so there was, and that's one of the reasons for getting all these cases together is they had one central depository, one central place for all of these documents. And mm -hmm. e Eli Lilly uh, put, you know, put in, a, I, I don't know, it, it was millions of pages. And in order to facilitate that, um, the plaintiff's lawyers, the people, you know, the lawyers representing the people that were allegedly were harmed by it, um, and Lilly entered into an agreement, uh, it's called a protective order, or, or uh, I call it a secrecy uh, order, or agreement, um, that was then ordered by the court, which one, which one of the things it provided was that if someone was like Eagleman was subpoenaed in another case, he had to give Lilly notice and a reasonable opportunity to object before, uh, you know, providing the documents. So right. that, and, and Eagleman wanted to do that, uh, have find someone to do that so he could get the New York Times to write an expose about the whole thing. Right, so he he wanted you to subpoena him? Right, and, and the reason why he got me was I, uh, I had a case involving Zyprexa uh, a couple of years before. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, I had this really great expert, Dr. Grace Jackson. Um, and she looked at the documents, the studies that were used to approve Zyprexa. And she, uh, you know, found where they had, you know, basically fraudulent. And, um, so she wrote a, a report called Olanzapine, which is a, a uh, chemical name for Zyprexa. Mm -hmm. Olanzapine, a uh, dangerous drug, dubious uh, efficacy, or something like that. And it turned, and actually, it was Alex Berenson, the reporter for the New York Times, who found that report on the internet because I post all these documents. Right. Uh, and so Berenson suggested to Dr. Eagleman that he give me a call. And I, of course, was very interested in, um, in the documents. And it was interesting for me, the idea that Zyprexa caused diabetes was not news. You know, and I right. even posted on the internet about it. Um, but, you know, I knew that having the New York Times, you know, write, uh, what ended up being a series of uh, front page stories on it. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> have you know, a much uh, bigger effect. Um, one of the interesting aspects was that you, you did subpoena Eggelman. Uh, you got these millions of pages. Well, I only got, no, he, what he did is he, 
you know, he took he, he took from the millions of pages, I don't know, it's probably, I don't know, a thousand, fifteen hundred pages, maybe okay. not even of the key, you know, of the key ones that, you know, that showed where they knew that it caused uh, Zyprexa, I mean, caused diabetes and, you know, and, and you know, the, this, uh, right, which is good because we got to come clean with this. And of course they didn't. Right. It seems like uh, companies can take two, st two strategies if they don't want you to see information. One is to fight to give you as little as possible. And the, the other one is to give you far more than is necessary, including a lot of completely irrelevant stuff and hope that you can never find the gems. But so anyway, Eggleman had sort of sifted through this for you. So you had a relatively small amount of stuff. But one of the problems that came out in the, in the case, because this ended up in lengthy litigation, was that you didn't know whether your current client was going to be, was, had been forced or would be forced to use Zyprexa Turns out you were right, but you you couldn't prove it. And, well, uh, one of the things what happened was I was pretty sure he'd been given it, mm -hmm. um, but when I talked to him, he you know he kind of he had other things on his mind, um, and but I asked him, uh, you know, I asked the the hospital to give him a, an authorization for release of information to sign, uh, where they would give me his records, and this was before I subpoenaed. And they refused to even let him sign it, saying he had a guardian, and only the guardian could sign. Um, so, so that's why I didn't have the records. And it turns out he had been drugged with uh, Zyprexa against his will within a week of when I subpoenaed him. Wow. And he was drugged with Zyprexa uh, against his will. And the hospital was participating in the, in the cover-up. And was this Bill Bigley? Yes. Uh, in your book, you described Bill Bigley as having been hospitalized 80, over 80 times. Sort of right. like, uh, by hospitalized, I mean, grabbed off the street, put into the hospital and forcibly medicated, not, not just hospitalized. Right. I mean, he ended up with pretty close to 100 by the time he died. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you had many... Um, cases with him, which, you know, had varying outcomes. But like in the case where you were forcibly injected, like what was the theoretical legal standard and what was the actual legal standard where they can stick a needle in you? Well, I was, well, I guess when I was first brought into the hospital, I mean, the only time I, they considered it voluntary. Um, so never got court orders against me. And the only time, you know, they stuck a needle in me was when, when I, I mean, when I got hauled into the hospital the first time, I don't even remember. Mm. It, you know, I kind of have this vague recollection of being in the, I guess, in the uh, admitting, you know, part there. But uh, uh, so that was the only time they injected me. Other, otherwise, I, you know, I took it. I didn't really like it, but it really didn't. Uh, from uh, didn't really affect me that much, you know, the way I was, you know, from my perception. Um, but I kind of lost the thread of your question here. Um, well, 
my my question maybe this is more appropriate with bigly is is like a lot of the fights you had over forced medication were trying to follow the legal standard where the oh. hospital seemed oh, yeah, to be yeah, like yeah, sidestepping yeah. uh, the standard for forced medication so the statute in alaska says that if the person is incompetent to decide whether to either take it or decline it, that the hospital gets to do whatever it wants. It can go to court and say he's in, in if the court finds the person incompetent, the hospital gets to do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. And so actually that case that Berenson finds about Olanzapine, uh, Zyprexa, with the Jackson report, um, I had just won an Alaska Supreme Court decision on that where they said, uh, which is what I argued, is yeah, they don't get to just do whatever they want just because you're incompetent. They, um, they have to at least show that it's in the person's best interest and there's no less intrusive alternative. And so that's basically the constitutional standard in the United States, but it's, it's ignored. I mean, I, I actually wrote a law review article that's on the psych rights homepage too called Involuntary Commitment and Forced Drugging in the Trial Courts, Rights Violations as a Matter of Course. And so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like in court, there was a, a process, they went through a few motions, they got what they wanted and they, they went off and you were disrupting that by insisting that the actual law be followed. Right, the typical uh, process was they would, at that time they had hearings every Tuesday and, and uh, Thursday, or was it Friday? And, um, you know, there might be 10 or 15 cases. They started at 1.30 and they were done by uh, 4.30. The, you know, the lawyers and the judge all got to go home for dinner and the people were locked up. And so, you know, the lots of times the petitions for the commitment and forced drugging was filed that morning mm -hmm. and there and was one public defender to handle all those cases maybe had five minutes to talk to the client and the hearings were maybe 15 minutes before there was an order for the person to be locked up and drugged against their will and you described how the public defenders basically participated in the forced drugging you know uh, well, by allowing and, it to happen. Yeah, in Bigley's case, they did a couple of, uh, I mean, one, th a couple of terrible things. But um, I mean, their basic attitude in, is, you know, if my client wasn't crazy, she'd know this is good for her, and therefore we're really not going to fight for their rights. But that's, I mean, that is, just makes a farce of the legal system because the state should have to prove you know, really prove that it's in the person's best interest and there's no less interest. You also described with Bill Bickley that, you know, he was, uh, I mean, I think it's important that he was not sometimes a very easy person. He would do weird things and, and shout and, and, you know, things that people could see where this person's not right. Um, but you would try to get him some support you know, of people that can try to calm him down and do things other than take him to the hospital and inject him with drugs. But that seemed to not be a priority and not be very easy to accomplish. 
Well, the really funny thing is I propose this, this system and the, you know, and the hospital was just adamantly against it. And then, but then they ended up pretty much doing it and it, and it worked. It worked when we had a little money that we could put to it for a little while and it worked then. And then they had then, I mean, he was causing so much trouble. I mean, it was mainly yelling. He would yell mm-hmm. at people. He was angry with what happened. And then he, you know, and then he would say things like, you know, I'm the president or I know George Bush or, you know, I have, you know, millions of dollars and I have, you know, an airport, you know, a jet, and all, you know, all this stuff that, you know, was clearly, um, uh, you know, not accurate, and, you know, and. Um, yeah, I mean, the kind of so thing that was, if you say it. If you say that kind of stuff, then people go, this guy's crazy. Yeah, and he was crazy. And But so what? I mean, does that mean you should force him to take a mm-hmm. drug that is, you know, going to make things worse, is going to uh, reduce his lifespan um, and not not really help him? And with Bill in particular, it didn't, I, I never really noticed much difference with what, you know, he was so used to being drugged and, you know, and then he, he would, and then go cold turkey. I mean, he'd immediately quit most of the time uh, once they let him out. And so he was on and off and, you know, and he was pretty much the same on or off as far as I, I could tell. And, you know, and it didn't work for, you know, by the time I got, got there, I think he was on his 67th admission. And it was like, you know, what's the definition of insanity that Einstein said, which is, you know, to, do the same thing and expect a different result. And right. were, it just wasn't working. For, and, you know, and so they wanted to do the same thing. And do we know that that part of his behavior was was due to the drugs? You know, years of taking psychoactive substances. I mean, did that sort of exacerbate his his there's mental? There's no doubt. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that that's true. So he was. I mean, one of the things is I really related to him. He he was just two months older than me, and he was taken to the ho- the hospital, the same hospital I I was taken to, the Alaska Psychiatric Institute, known as API, two years before. Um, but what brought him there was that he he had a he had a good job. He was a heavy equipment operator in Ketchikan, Alaska, for a uh, timber uh, com- company, a timber mill, and uh, and he had a wife and two kids, and then his wife left him and took the d- daughters, and he got saddled with uh, child support and alimony that he couldn't handle, and he had a nervous breakdown, and that's what he said when he went, you know, when he ended up in the hospital, he had a nervous breakdown, and so. Um, and his da- his psychiatrist then was actually Robert Alberts, the one who you know saved my life basically. And and the discharge summary, you know, talking about the, his prognosis, which means you know his uh, prospects for the future, that it, it was guarded depending on how much help he was given with dealing with his divorce. Well, he wasn't given any help with his divorce. Right, right. And so and he took the drug voluntarily then. But they, at that time, and this was another place where I was really lucky, is they, um, you know, I mentioned that the drugs uh, block 70 to 90% uh, 
of the dopamine in the nasal ganglia. Well, that's mm -hmm. a kind of a movement center in your brain, or at least part of it. And so, um, basically, that when people people get Parkinson's disease, it's when they have that much, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, diminution of the dopamine transmission in the nasal ganglia. And so, um, they would decide it was a therapeutic dose when they start to see what they call extrapyramidal symptoms, which basically means involuntary movements, mm -hmm. which is basically brain damage, enough brain damage to, so that you can't control your movements. So they basically fried him, fried his brain right at the beginning. Right. Um, and so there's no doubt in my mind that um, what could have been a transitory problem, I mean, people you know, go through problems, a transitory problem that he could have gotten through, that he was turned into, a, you know, a lifelong uh, mental patient. Right. Well, um, we're getting towards the end of our time. Um, if people want to know more about um, this, this story, both the, the story of how you got the papers and like the long convoluted court proceedings that occurred as Eli Lilly tried to wrest them out of your hands. And then they sort of intertwined a story of, of Bill Bigley. They can read your book, The Zyprexa Papers. Um, to close off, I'd just like to ask, when it comes to Zyprexa, has anything changed? Is it still uh, used as much as it was? Is it still making money for Eli Lilly? Or are people uh, avoiding the drug now? Uh, I think it's used less than it would have otherwise been, but it's generic now. It's gone generic, and so mm -hmm. uh, off patent. Know, the, big, the big bucks, right? Off patent, um, and so the big bucks for Lily, you know, have ended. It's still used, and it's still forced on people. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the ironies. And was and sadly, I gave Eli Lilly this point in our, you know, settlement negotiations that ended up not going anywhere. But um, so Eli, the Alaska v. Eli, Eli Lilly was where Alaska sued Eli Lilly for the cost of treating uh, diabetes caused by Zyprexa, mm -hmm. and so they're suing Lilly for uh, these costs caused by. Uh, Zyprexa, at the same time, they're going to court and forcing people to take it. Uh, well, a, a government with cognitive dissonance, I guess that's not unusual. Uh, there's lots of examples of that, unfortunately. Um, that That is, is quite bizarre. I mean, I, I don't think that, you know, there's been a lot of resistance to psychiatric drugging and a lot of people looking at, at alternatives, like giving people you know, are dealing with issues more support. So maybe they can actually get over their problems and go back um, to society. You mentioned uh, a man named Robert Whitaker um, quite a bit. I think I might have interviewed him back towards the beginning of my podcast, but I, I certainly admired his work, you know, as a journalist uncovering, um, the, you know, the, the dangers of the drugs and how they're not effective and, and you know, in the end, don't cure anybody. Uh, the wonders of psychiatric medication that keep people as patients for the rest of their lives. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, is what galvanized me to start Psych Rights. Because in addition to being a great read, to me, it was a litigation roadmap for challenging forced drugging, not just based on people's rights, but that it wasn't, you know, it's not in people's best interests. So Anatomy of an Epidemic is a great book, and there's a link to it on our website. But he later wrote a book called, or I mean, Mad in America, and later wrote a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic. Uh, uh, right, I think I might have read both of them. They are they are extremely good books, and you know, being written by a journalist, they're so well written and so easy to, um, you know, to read while being technical enough that you you know what's going on. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Jim, for joining me today. I've I've really appreciated this. Um, you know, there's so many problems uh, with medicine, but you know, psychiatric drugs are, are definitely a, a big one. And uh, we're not out of the woods yet. They're still, they're still seen by a large percentage of the population as, as important. And the, the people who get off their drugs, stop their meds are the problem. Uh, you know, nobody can understand why somebody would want to stop these medications. Right. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Jim, and, and have a good day. You too. I have to confess that I was scammed. In my major coronavirus paper, I referenced two articles based on data from a company named Surgisphere. They claimed to have data feeds from hundreds of hospitals around the world, but when a journalist phoned some of them, none knew anything about this company. It seems like the data may be wholly imaginary. In one case, some authors of one of the papers requested a retraction, saying that they were never given access to the data in the first place, but wait a minute, why did you sign on? There's an excellent article by Celia Farber in UncoverDC.com that describes this incredible story. I have, of course, removed the articles from my paper and uploaded a new version, but it's a reminder to be alert. Luckily, the papers were not critical to my arguments. COVID-19 is already replete with less than ethical behavior, people scrambling for money. For example, Gilead changed how they measured the success of a remdesivir trial, essentially removing death as an outcome. Executives of Moderna, that claimed to have a wonderful technology for COVID-19 vaccine, sold 89 million in stock this year. But if the vaccine was truly great, their stock would be worth much more later. Why sell now? According to Moderna, the vaccine is producing positive data, but some scientists interviewed noticed that, noted that nothing has been published and three volunteers in the very small trial have experienced serious adverse events, including Ian Hayden of Seattle, who has gone on television and yet bizarrely still supports the vaccine and was reluctant to talk about the side effects to avoid damaging the vaccine's chances. I'd like to thank new Patreon sponsors, Charlotte Kakel, Dean Johnson, Eric Coppolino, John Markert, Maria Mullen, Mike Elwood, and Milena, for new pledges, <clears throat> and one anonymous donor for a generous increase. Thanks to special friends John Jasper, Lynn Wright, and Robert Meekins. Some feedback. George, via email, I was just listening to your show about acetaminophen. I was very surprised that there was no discussion by the doctor about its liver toxicity. It's the number one cause of liver failure, and it's very easy to overdose. There is much info on it. This video is helpful, and he gives um, a Medscape link, medscape.com slash view article, 
one word, slash 823341. So, uh, yes, thanks for adding that information, and I, I don't know why Dr. Parker didn't uh, talk about that. Marla, via Patreon, wrote, Thank you so much for your persistence and your patience through invaluable research. I'm inexpressibly grateful. Craig, via email, I'm really fascinated by your paper. I hadn't heard of you until the other day. I'll definitely keep across what you're writing. Patricio, via Facebook, love your podcast, quoted all the time. Chris, via email, I just listened to a May 6th podcast that you were the guest on after having read your recent papers. I want to thank you for what you've written and the work that you do. I'd also like to point out that conspiracies can be quite large and wide and going back hundreds of years, and they can also be proven with data. I actually had an interesting discussion in episode 205 with uh, academic Curtis Hagen, who specializes in conspiracy theories. And as we talked, he pointed out that actually quite a few conspiracies come true. You can't just throw out an idea because it's a conspiracy. He also pointed out that um, you know, there's no problem for the government to allege conspiracies. In fact, legally, it just takes two people making a phone call to have a uh, conspiracy that can land people in jail for a lot more time than if it was one person um, individually. So I don't get too bothered by the word conspiracy theory. It's a lazy way to try to get rid of somebody who's talking about uh, some ideas that are non-mainstream or that are opposed to government policy um, or, or whatever. Thank you for listening to episode 258 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, a question, or a suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth, Join our discussion group at facebook.com slash groups slash The Infectious Myth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Infectious Myth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to Infectious Myth on patreon.com or librerapay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye.